Happy Sabbath and welcome to our time together. It's a time of conversation. It's a time of thoughtful study. It's a time of interaction. Above all, it's a time where we hope that God is present in your life. And as his present becomes perceptible, we pray that you continue growing deeper and closer. So we're going to pray and we're going to talk about one of my favorite parables. Uh, so I want to enjoy, invite you to join me to pray. God of presence, we pray that you move in our areas of influence. And as you do that, uh, we pray that your blessings be made apparent to us. Mm -hmm. For we pray in your name. Amen. So we're talking, friends, about uh, the whole idea of missions. And it took all this time for us to actually start asking the questions. Well, what if I don't have to go far away? What if my area of mission is my neighbor? And there's no story that better illustrates this conundrum of our neighbor than uh, that story that is central to uh, the experience here at Loma Linda. If you're ever on our campus, you know that our beautiful university grass and uh, that mall uh, that holds the, both the medical and the dental student graduations is decorated by an image, an image that illustrates this parable of the Good Samaritan so we're going to hope that as you hop on with us and we consider this story for the next 40 some odd minutes, that maybe, and just maybe, you'll learn something that you hadn't learned before. And if not, then it'll gonna, it's going to be a good review of something that you already know. So I'm going to invite, as always, my co-host and colleague, Joey O, uh, to, to jump in as we celebrate not only uh, the real, real beginning of the holiday season, next week, as you know, is Thanksgiving, but also um, this, this time in which, in which we start considering who our neighbors are with some events here at church. How are you, Joe? I'm doing good. It's, um, you know, holiday seasons can be very busy, but this is one that I'm very much looking forward to spending some time with the family after mm. a busy season. And it feels like the weather has finally realized that we are in November mm -hmm. here in Southern California mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like we talk a lot about the weather, <laughs> but that's because in California, when you have such mild and balmy temperatures, really there's very little to talk about. Um, Whereas I'm assuming in other places where the weather is much more intemperate, um, you don't have to talk about the weather because it's obvious that the weather is either great or terrible. Yeah. Um, but as we think about Thanksgiving, we think about the story, I think, that punctuates mm -hmm. uh, Jesus's ministry. What are some initial thoughts that you that you might have about this idea of, of the Good Samaritan, I think, in conjunction with our views on extending mission uh, and we're obviously going to be talking about luke chapter 10 and verse 25 and on yeah i mean we, we're probably not going to spend that much time on this but i really appreciated the setup that the lesson did 
in showing the connection between our relationship with God, our mm. faith in God, and the love that we show for mm. other people, right? Mm. Faith, um, of course, that famous passage in James where he talks about show me mm. your show me your faith and I will show you my faith that comes through deeds, right? So this idea that faith is not something that is just hidden inside of us, something that we have and believe inside mm. of us, but it actually is demonstrated in the choices that we make every mm. day. And that faith, according to Jesus, should be marked by the way mm. that we love and the way we interact with our neighbors. And so this, this passage, this parable, is a perfect example of that kind of love mm. and faith. So there is that relationship kind of interconnected and intertwined between faith and your response as you go out and live in the world. The reality, though, is um, we we don't, or at least we have difficulty, showing the type of love that God shows, and we have difficulty having the type of faith uh, that is often required. And I, I don't know about you, but we tend to get down on ourselves and say, okay, I am not showing this type of of love or uh, this type of faith. And so there might be something wrong with me. And I, I had a interesting, well, not interesting. It was actually quite ordinary experience this week mm. playing with my dog and we've played for a while. And finally she's, she's tired out. And so she's turned on her back and she's leaned her head back. And so she is in a completely, completely vulnerable position. Mm. And I think often when we think about what the problem is, as we're considering both faith and our capacity for love, our bandwidth for love, is that we tend to think there is something wrong with us, that behaviorally we have some problems that we need to modify. The reality is it is difficult to love in the way that Joey is talking about friends or to believe in the way that Joey just shared because both of those experiences require some set, some type of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And I, that's, that's an interesting story because we talk often about vulnerability, yeah. uh, but we don't really take some time to unpack what that means. And so uh, just... Pay attention to, to the text as we read it, because this idea of vulnerability is going to be present as a, as a subtext. Yeah, I love what you're saying about your dog as well, because that apparently is a sign that a dog is happy is when they're willing to be that mm -hmm. vulnerable to you and show, that, show you their belly, show you their, mm -hmm. you know, their more vulnerable areas. That shows a lot of trust for right. you. So that's, that's beautiful. Wow, yeah. yeah. So um, how does how does this intertwine, this idea of faith, vulnerability, and then our capacity for love with the story that we're going to read? I know it's a story that we've read a lot, but as we're just pondering and, and talking about it, maybe something will, will pop up in the context, both of the question that is asked of Jesus and in this undergirding theme, which, which we're terming vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So... Luke 10.25 begins, On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So it's an interesting kind of setup that Luke is going to utilize as he introduces us to this text. Because 
This is the existential question. Mm. This is this is really, really at the heart of any religious movement. Mm-hmm. Um, we have an easy way as human beings uh, of codifying that which is known. Yeah. Where it gets a little nerve-wracking is to step into spaces uh, that either confront us with our mortality or force us to admit some sort of ignorance. And so I think a lot of our existential angst stems from grappling either with this impending sense of doom that has to do with the fact that we're creatures or uh, the fact that we are completely comfortable with being in in a state of ignorance. Ignorance, at least when it comes to the human condition, then is not bliss. And so you have this expert of the law mm-hmm. who has come and is attempting to test Jesus. And the reason why uh, Luke couches this, uh, this story in that language is because experts of the law traditionally came from a subsect of Judaism that didn't really talk about uh, eternal life. It mm. wasn't really part of uh, their everyday discourse. And so you could kind of tell your theological sophistication Mm. by your ability or inability to engage with these existential questions. Uh, The fool says there is no God, not because uh, he he or she has resolved all the existential questions, but because he uh, attempts to play, he or she attempts to placate their ignorance Mm with uh, indifference. And so this is, I think, what, it, what is happening. And uh, it's going to be a really interesting ride that Jesus is going to take this gentleman on. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a great point about the, the fact that these scribes, these um, experts on the law, and as, as most of you may already be aware, when he talks about the law, it's not talking about a civil law, mm-hmm. right? The law is God's law, right? The the law that's found in in the holy scriptures, and so it's it's interesting because um, Jesus, Jesus, it's almost like he's setting up this. Um, he's trying to set up a battle of wits and will between Jesus and he, um, and he is a self, or it's proclaimed here that he is an expert on the law, which means he has studied these things. He's ready for battle. He's sharpened his tool. And um, I, I wonder if he was taken aback by what Jesus said, or if this is what he expected Jesus to do. Mm. Like, did G- he expect Jesus to to confront him with a story, or did he expect him to engage in some kind of battle of knowledge of scriptures? Mm. I, I'm, I'm, I would be curious to see what he would have expected, but it seems like at the end, the way that it's described, the reaction that he has he he does seem a little bit overmatched by what Jesus mm. says to him, and it leaves him questioning. Which I think I'm hopeful that that for him that he would have an opportunity to he would have had an opportunity to sort of reflect on what Jesus said and maybe challenged him mm. to to think things differently as he moved forward. I don't know. So where is the challenge? The challenge then appears within within the story and this is i think the power of story 
as a tool to convey some sort of knowledge that you kind of have a plot developing. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're introduced to these two characters having a discussion. One of them comes with that angst that is so, so uh, well known and so felt by all of us human beings. What must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, in his mind, this conversation, this question has already res been resolved, mm. not because he has a answer to it. But as we as we said, mm -hmm. often ignorance is disguised by indifference. I don't care is often mm -hmm. a subset of uh, or, or a cue to indicate I'm I'm frightened. I don't really want to talk about it. So then Jesus responds, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Hmm. And the, I mean, if we're take, if, if theology and faith and love and vulnerability is about getting the right answers to the test, then he, in verse 27, has aced it. Hmm. He talks about Deuteronomy and he, he cites that well, well known and oft quoted text in Deuteronomy, mm. which is just so powerful at, as a summary of the whole Jewish faith. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, I think one of the things that ought to perk our interest is in a culture that moves uh, so, so obsessively towards getting the right answer and in a culture uh, or in a social paradigm that is often about getting the answers right and the information correct. It's interesting that it seems like having the right answer, or dare we say having the right theology, mm. at least in Jesus's value system, isn't as high as maybe we'd like it to be. And that mm. makes me nervous, by the way. The fact that the right theological answer isn't as high on the theological uh, value system as it should be. Hmm. Yeah, and it's not that it's not important because Jesus affirms him, right? He says, you have answered correctly. Correct. But then he adds to it, do this and you will live. Mm -hmm. So it's not, I mean, Je I think Jesus's point here is that, yeah, having the right answer is great. But it's not enough to just know what the right thing is. You've got to actually do it, right? right? That that cross-section between theory and prax practice that we've talked about before. Mm. And he's saying, just like in James, um, faith demonstrates itself mm. in works. The, the key, or I think the, the rub, however, is that this, this close connection between what we believe and how those beliefs cause us to live actually forces us to dig a little deeper. And mm. this is why we have to appreciate Jesus as a teacher mm. and as a preacher. Because it's almost as if Jesus is always asking us to dig deeper. Mm. Now, you and I, when we're teaching or when we're sharing something up front, I think um, as pastors, we're, we're trained in the art of recognizing that you need to unmask the the ignorance by by having people confront that indifference that we were talking about yeah. the best way to do that is you convey correct information and then you hope that that information leads to a call to action mm -hmm. change 
But what is often, I think, uh, forgotten is that Jesus is kind of always asking us to dig deeper. Mm. And I think that is um, is almost almost a counterbalance to this temptation that a lot of us people of faith have, which is we often confuse descriptions for diagnosis. Mm. So yes, this is a great description of how how a person of faith ought to live and what the person of faith ought to believe. That's a great description. But I think for Jesus, and you see this throughout the Gospels, as Eugene, uh, that preacher extraordinaire Eugene Laurie, Laurie notes, the power in the Gospels mm. is that where descriptions uh, ought to satisfy you and me, for Jesus, it's always about diagnosis. And so mm. verse 29 opens the door mm -hmm. for diagnosis. He says, but he wanted to justify himself. Yeah. Yeah, that's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So Jesus, like he does with the Samaritan woman, he cuts to the heart of the mm -hmm. issue, not exactly what they're presenting with, but also, like you said, diagnosing what is the issue mm -hmm. in the heart. And I think this is just a reminder of the importance of of repentance mm -hmm. for ourselves. Yes. Right? Taking yes. that well time stated. Because because we you know, we we don't do self-examination well in our culture right and in, in, in our culture we're always about moving and doing so there's not a lot of time for reflection and yet you know what you, you and i have discovered um as we've studied about leadership that great leaders take time to mm. reflect that's why they journal right mm. is to take time to reflect on the things that have happened so that they understand what are what is going on inside of me that's causing me to make the mm. same self-destructive choices over and over mm. again, right? What if, what is happening inside of me that's broken? And and that that cuts to the, the heart of the sin and the thing that's inside. And you see Jesus doing that with the Samaritan woman, right? When he talks to her at the well, she's she says, give me, you know, give me a water that won't run mm -hmm. dry. And he's trying to teach her the, about eternal, an eternal water that's going to refresh her soul, not just her thirst, mm. right? So he cuts right through the, to the issue, and he does the same thing here, like you said. He he forces this man to justify, to try to um, justify what is going mm. on in his heart. Like he already knows the right answer is to love, but he doesn't. He doesn't necessarily believe that the neighbors encompasses everything, mm. right? Because, I mean, that was a big theolo theological debate at that time. Who is my neighbor? Mm -hmm. This is an answer that most, most theologians at that time, most experts in the law, understood. Love is very central to the message mm. of, of God. Right. And yet, who is it that we should love? I mean... <laughs> I mean, most people would is, would have assumed, well, the Romans are out. They right. are not my neighbors, right? That's pretty obvious. They're not my neighbors. I don't need to love them. But even among the Jews, are there certain tax collectors? Mm. They seem to have, have abandoned our people, so they must not be our neighbors. Mm. Prostitutes and sinners, are they a part of the circle of my neighbors? And so the, the whole idea, the conversation didn't become so much about how do we love better. The conversation became about who do we actually need to love, mm. right? 
yeah. and has shrunk that. And instead of debating on that level, Jesus just broadens with his story. He broadens the scope of those we need to love. And that, like you said, cuts to the heart of why is it that you're trying to shrink the people you need to love mm. over and over again? What's going on there? Yeah, so descriptions do that. They're, they're really, really handy mm. to delineate a subset or a subsystem of people or things. Um, by the way, English and Greek, mm. um, they're adjectival languages. We, we love descriptions, both, both in any Proto-Indo-European language. This is why I wish we could, we could be uh, in, in a culture or a linguistic framework that doesn't use as many adjectives. Mm. The Semitic language doesn't use as many adjectives because they're not as interested in describing, mm. because describing delineates something. And maybe it's the power of their walk with God that kind of pushed them in this direction where it's saying, Wait, wait, the moment you delineate something, mm. you've already restricted it. Mm. This word that he uses, dikaios, uh, to justify, mm. it's a word that's well known um, in Greek. We all have heard it. Uh, I, I remember preaching as a first, uh, second year theology student, a terrible sermon on dikaiosune, just terrible. Uh, <laughs> but it was one of the first, that's like, Theology 101, uh, Hesed Dikayosune. Mm. And, but the word itself is, is a word that you never use of yourself. You cannot justify yourself. In the Greek, it is always someone else that offers it to you. Now, within the linguistic framework, Dikaios is a description that somebody gives of somebody that is fulfilling a quota. So you are acting in accordance with certain principle, mm. principles, and then somebody says, you are Dikaios. Mm. So this man, expert in the law as he is, yeah. has missed two really basic ideas. First, first off, you cannot, you cannot declare yourself righteous. <laughs> the language itself uh, makes that an impossibility. Somebody else has to bestow that characteristic upon you. Yeah. But what is even more fascinating uh, is that Jesus is going to push even beyond the bounds of language. Mm -hmm. Because for Jesus, this word, dikaiosune, dikaios, is not something that you do because you have fulfilled a quota. It is something that you do because this is who you are. So you are you are righteous uh, yeah. as an inherent uh, quality that you possess as being a son or a daughter of God. So Jesus mm. is is upsetting the equilibrium here on two levels. He's doing it linguistically, mm -hmm. and he's also doing it theologically, which is just a masterstroke here. It, just in verse, uh, even before he started mm -hmm. to tell the story, Luke is already upsetting the the equilibrium, which is what I think good theology does. Yeah, yeah, it challenges us to think in broader ways. That's that's so powerful. I love how you make this connection between 
this idea of justifying himself, really what he's doing is trying to declare himself mm -hmm. righteous, right? That's literally the word that's being mm -hmm. used here is the idea that by justifying himself, he's trying to look righteous mm -hmm. in his own eyes. And yet, as you're saying, that's not possible. We can't declare ourselves righteous. And the second part, what you said, that right, being righteous, the way that Jesus um, talked about is a state of being that's given to us as, as a a factor of who we are mm -hmm. rather than something that we earn or mm -hmm. do, right? Um, which was very different to what he's saying, mm -hmm. right? Because he's saying you have to do these actions and then you're going to be righteous. And then Jesus says, go ahead and do those things. And he says, well, um, needing to justify the fact that I don't always do those things, I need to restrict who the neighbors are so that then I can feel like I've done the things mm -hmm. that I need to do to be declared righteous. Right. And Jesus is saying, no, that's it. no, that's you got it. it all wrong. And because of that, Joey, the whole tenor of the story can be read different. Mm. And this is the aha moment, mm. because what the, the question really is, what is the least I can do? Mm. I am a student of the law. I'm mm. an expert in it. I have position and power and privilege. Mm. And so I am by de facto in the helper mode. Yeah. Now tell me, Jesus, who do I need to help? Yeah. And so he tells him this story. <laughs> and I don't want to spoil the, the twist, but if you know the story, you're going to see already that Jesus is setting him up to, to twist not just theology on him, mm. but his whole value system's about wow. to switch. Wow. But let's, let's not linger over that. Let's go into the text. So a man goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. You know the story well. He is on the way and he falls into the hands of robbers. They strip him of his clothes, beat him, and then leave him half dead. And then enters uh, curtain drops, uh, act one, priest. And the priest looks at him and uh, he's going down the same road. He passes, not even gets close to him, passes on mm. the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, passed him by on the other side. Now, if you're tracking, you know that the majority of the people in the audience, if you've been tracking with Luke, are not Levites or priests. Mm. They're common everyday people. And so I'm assuming that there's kind of this crescendo in the audience, right? Of course. And those priests in Jerusalem, they're terrible. They are, uh, they're actually the same as the Romans. Uh, they exploit us. They uh, have this whole money changing system in the, in the temple that is intended to rob us blind. Of course, the guy has no, absolutely no compassion. Then walks the Levite. And the people sitting there are saying, well, of course. Uh, the, these Levites are part of an ancient system that... Uh, prioritizes right over right be over right behavior they know not the first thing of righteousness in the mm. marketplace of life of course and so then you're expecting the third uh the third character and i'm assuming they're saying well here come you know common day uh people galileans or judeans that obviously are tracking with Jesus because we're following him. That's not who, who jumps in the picture though. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And the person that drops drops it in the picture is somebody that nobody would declare righteous. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> nobody would say, I mean, the just just the relationship that the hate hate relationship that defined the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. I mean, it's it's such an interesting thing that the people that we love to hate the most are the people who are just slightly different than mm. us, right? Like the people who are radically different than us, there's, I mean, we may not like them, but there isn't like this animosity mm -hmm. there. But those people that are kind of close, but different, those are the people mm. that we have the strongest reactions to. I mean, just think about like the, the people that I've seen when I go online and I read some articles online in various Adventist news sources, the people that that get the most animosity, the most vitriol, um, either from the article or from the comments after the article, are those who are all also Adventist, mm. right? But are slightly different versions mm. of being Adventist. And that's so fascinating to me that we we have we have we observe some of our strongest criticisms, our strongest vitriol for those who are slightly different than us. And that, that's the same thing with the Samaritans. Samaritans claim to be people of God, they, to follow, follow Yahweh, all of these things. And yet the Jews considered them to be, for lack of a better term, like mongrel mm. um, Jews, that's right? That's a perfect, that's a, <laughs> that, that is the term that is used in, yeah. the, in, in the New Testament for yeah. them, yeah. Yeah. And so they, there's this such, such hatred, so much, blood that's shed between these mm. two groups. So if there's anybody that wouldn't be included, we would think it would be the Samaritan. That is the brilliance of the story, right? The brilliance of the story is that Jesus uses these very real tensions, and mm. you're talking about vitriol, and we don't need to reference the long and sordid history between Jews and Samaritans. You, you, I think, rightly mentioned how disparaging the, the Jews would talk about Samaritans. The brilliance, though, is that in the story, Jesus not only, now Jesus hasn't only upset our equilibrium. Jesus has knocked us off the beam mm -hmm. because nobody is expecting that's not the way stories are told. Mm -hmm. Nobody is expecting a Samaritan to come and save the day. Mm -hmm. And yet, it is not just that the Samaritan comes and saves the day. It is that the Samaritan shows compassion, um, whereas, whereas the other two simply have uh, curiosity. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, somebody else, robbers. We better keep moving mm -hmm. uh, because there are bigger things to do. And by the way, we justify it. It's very easy if you're, we miss it. We, I think we miss it, right, Joey? We miss the fact that it, the behavior that both the priest and the Levite have mm -hmm. can be easily, easily justified. The mm -hmm. priest touches this guy mm -hmm. and there are no, there are no sacrifices that day. And the whole theological system in Israel breaks down. Mm -hmm. You need the sacrifices. I, what, what is it that the utilitarian ethicists tell us? You, you sacrifice the one to save the many. This is the mindset, right? <laughs> 
Um, for the Levite, you know that Levites, they weren't always called to the temple. So the guy, the reason that this guy is going to Jerusalem as a Levite is probably because this is the only time he's going to go to. There were some Levites that went and served at the temple once in their life. This was the pinnacle of their vocation. Yeah. yeah. And if I touch this man, what about my vocation? Yeah. And so both the, the temptation is to dismiss these two characters as, as abhorrent when if we're really careful in, in, in doing the analysis of what Jesus is trying to convey, chances are I can, I can actually justify both the behavior of the priest and the Levite. It's true. I mean, I mean, just I mean, we can make it very real. If I'm on my way to church to preach on Sabbath morning mm -hmm. and, and there's a car accident in front of me, right? I mean, do I stop? And I'm late to church, and then mm. thus I don't preach mm. and help the person? Or do I just pass by just assuming somebody else is going to mm -hmm. help them? I have the job that I need to do. That's more important. And so I pass right. by. Right. right. Or, and I'm going to, I'm going to, oof, I'm going to even give you one that's, that's even, that's even tougher. Uh, for the Jews, the whole security of the nation had to do with their capacity to sacrifice. Yes. Priest doesn't get there. The whole nation's in peril now. Yeah. Um, which is why it's just, it, it, it has to upset the way that we understand. And Jesus has a really brilliant way of doing this throughout uh, Luke's narrative. The economy of the kingdom doesn't make sense. Grace is a bank account that's always overdrawn. You leave 99 sheep and you risk them uh, in the wilderness to go save the one. Yeah. You risk your capacity uh, to actually perform the duties that keep the nation safe mm -hmm. in order to, to, to touch and to heal this man who is now uh, ritually unclean. And that, I mean, that's what Jesus did too, mm -hmm. right? Jesus can make an unlimited number of humans. So when, when a creator dies for the creations, mm. you are risking the, the life of the one who is the source of life for people who have rejected life. Mm. I mean, that's just, it just doesn't make sense. It's like, it's like paying a million dollars for one bowling ball or something. <laughs> it's like, it's like not, it, it doesn't make sense. The sacrifice that he made, um, it, it's not just about one man dying for many. It's about a the God, God dying for many. Mm -hmm. And that's just mind blowing that he'd be willing to go through that sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And yet that's exactly what he does. Mm -hmm. so, but that's a struggle, right? So does that inform the ways that we make choices? Should that inform the way that we choose in our lives that, that we should choose ways that don't make sense and that put value in one individual over many individuals. I mean, what does that mean in the ways that we should practice compassion and love? Is that what this story is saying to us? I think the answer is going to shock us. The answer is, I, th in, I think, at least in the text. Hmm. Um, and the answer, I think, has to do with recognizing who we are in the story. So I don't want to spoil it. Yeah. Um, because I think... It, I, I was reading it and it just, I, this weekend I saw it and I said, oh, 
because that question has always bothered me. Yeah. I have you you mentioned the the uh, example of oh, well I have to I have to preach. Mm-hmm. I have to go and do something really important and meaningful. This is my vocation. Is what Jesus is saying that I need to put that in the back burner mm-hmm. uh for the sake of my neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um and we we'll, we have this this man who enters the picture starts taking care uh, with uh, oil and wine and leaves the credit card there for, mm-hmm. for the innkeeper and says, hey, whatever he needs, charge it, charge it on my account. And then Jesus hits us with the way in which the, soul, the whole upside down, mm-hmm. upset equilibrium of the story makes sense. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? <laughs> so think about how the story starts. Yeah. Who is my neighbor? Yeah. So it, for, the, for, the, for the teacher of the law, mm-hmm. the neighbor, it, the question of neighborliness <laughs> is, I am in this position to help. Who do I need to help? Mm-hmm. For Jesus, it's no, 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 sir teacher of the law, you're in the, you're the guy, you're not the guy, you're not the priest or the Levite or the Samaritan, you're the guy in the ditch. Mm -hmm. And I think had the priest or the Levite recognized that they were the ones on the ditch, the answer that the, the answer to the question that you are asking becomes much more simpler. I am, I need a Samaritan in my life. Mm. And it is when we recognize that uh, theological accuracy or wisdom, good theology that leads to good practice that then allows us to kind of have a barometer to measure how well we are doing in the arena of faith and Christian lifestyle. Those things are all good and well, as long as we realize that we're the ones in the ditch. And it is, I think it's that shift um, in behavior, uh, in looking at our position vis-a-vis the position of the world, that really uh, changes and makes the question uh, much more easy to answer. So you ask, well, what if there's a car accident? I think my, my response to the car accident on the side of the road uh, as I'm getting ready to preach uh, is contingent on the fact that if I've ha- ever been in a car accident on the mm. side of the road and no one's stopped to add to help, mm. and if I've had that experience, that probably uh, colors the way I react. If mm. my experience has been as somebody that's experienced a car accident on the side of the road, nobody's ever helped, um, and I know what that feels like, I know I'm in the ditch, as it were, I'm much more liable to then pull over and stop and say, well, the sermon's going to have to wait uh, 20 minutes because I know what this feels like. And I think that's the power of this story. The power of the story is that from the beginning, Jesus is trying to not only tell, teach us about righteousness and righteous living and neighborliness, although that is definitely in the story, I think the question that the man starts with is an existential question. Mm. And the answer to that question is realizing 
what our existential reality is. Mm. Namely, you don't need to worry about eternal life because you can't get eternal life. Mm -hmm. You're in the ditch. Yeah. You need a Samaritan. Yeah, that's so powerful. Yeah, because that, that's always what struck me about this story is at the ending, the twist is not just that the Samaritan comes into the picture, mm -hmm. but that the Samaritan it, it, Jesus reverses the story mm -hmm. and you're not the one that's helping. You're the one who's needing mm -hmm. help. Like you, you ask the question, who, who is my neighbor? Well, in that case, when you're in the ditch, anybody who helps you is your neighbor, right? Like you want anybody to be able to, it doesn't matter if it's a Samaritan or a priest or a Levite, I just want help, right? So in that, when you, when you realize that you're in the ditch, you are a lot more open mm -hmm. to anybody being your neighbor. And yet, that's not always the way that mm -hmm. we see ourselves. We don't always see ourselves as the ones in the ditch. We see ourselves as the ones who are the ones in the position to help. And that's, that's so powerful um, because I think what Jesus is doing for him and for us, as you, you've indicated, is he's broadening our, broadening our perspective because he's helping us to see that See, for all of us, we, we are, our point of view is by default, the most important one, mm -hmm. because that's the one that we live in, mm -hmm. right? And so it's very easy for us to be self-absorbed. When I'm the one who has a car accident on the side of the road and I'm in danger, that is the most important problem. It may not be the most important problem to the people driving mm -hmm. by for them, but for me, it's the most important problem. And I want other people to treat it as mm -hmm. if it were the most important problem. But when I'm on the side of the road driving by, I don't always see the other person's perspective as being the, the most important problem because that's not mine, right? And what Jesus seems to be saying is, understand that you're all in the ditch. You're all, what would you want? I mean, that's exactly what he says. Love your neighbor as yourself, mm -hmm. right? What would you want if you were the one in the ditch? Who would you want to be your neighbor? And be that kind of neighbor mm -hmm to everyone, the same neighbor that you would want, be that neighbor mm. to others. And there, there's something very powerful. I think there's something very powerful there because the expert in the law, man, he, he doesn't even want to say this Samaritan. He says, the one who has mercy on him. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, you know what? You didn't want to say it, but you actually got it. Go and do likewise. Mm. Be the one. Be the one who realizes that you need mercy, mm. like you said so that you're also able to offer mercy. Yeah, that's, I think that's so well stated. Our problems when, when we focus on our perspective um, are always by de facto the most important problems. And it makes sense, right? Um, there's a whole parallel system of uh, ethics and uh, belief that, that stems from evolutionary biology, right? I do whatever I need to do in order to keep myself safe. Mm -hmm. And that is coded into our DNA. But then we read the story mm. and there's something, it's almost as if you get in your, in the depths of your soul, an echo of who you really were meant to be. Yeah, And you say, I don't know why, I don't know how, I can't explain it. It's, it doesn't make sense financially or it doesn't make sense ex, uh, in, for safety reasons or if you're doing cost-benefit analysis, 
I'm it's overdrawn and bankrupt, but it it inspires me. And I think that leaning into that echo of the divine that is present in each and every one of us mm -hmm. is the first way in which we start aligning mm -hmm. our value systems with the economy of heaven. Uh, because until you do that, you are not going to have the capacity to see uh, that you are in that you are in the ditch. But there's oh, the stories that turn it on us like mm. that are the best stories ever. I remember <laughs> being 12 years old, 13 years old, um, and there was a movie that came out. Um, I don't know how I got to watch it because it wasn't a movie that I should have watched at as a teenager, but nonetheless I did. And um, it was a movie... I that I still can't really remember the plot. It's called The Usual Suspects. <laughs> can't really remember the plot. Uh, can't really remember uh, what uh, what actually happens within the first 99.9% uh, of time in, in the film. There's this kind of macabre, uh, mysterious figure uh, that is like a master criminal and uh, he's super, almost a supernatural Kaiser Sose. Uh, Kaiser Sose. Yeah. <laughs> and again, I can't tell you what happened in the movie. I can tell you, though, yeah. that at the end of the movie, there's this guy. Mm. Uh, his name is Vern. And he has, you, you can tell he's, he's not very coordinated, not, not particularly bright. And, but at the end of the movie, he's walking with a limp. And the camera just pans on, it's this close shot of his feet, and all of a sudden the limp disappears, and you know that he is Kaiser Soze. And if you ask people what uh, about The Usual Suspect, they'll, they'll say, oh, one of the best films ever made. If you ask them to tell you what the movie's about, or the <laughs> plot line, or to be uh, concise in what what follows, um, most of them won't know. But they'll know that last scene, and that is, I think, the power mm -hmm. of something that upsets our paradigm. And this is what Jesus is doing. Mm -hmm. My question then is, how do we Kaiser Sose our approach to missions? Because it seems like from the beginning, uh, the the task that the track that we take with missions is a very top down track, mm -hmm. and so it seems here in this story at least as as ask that is trying to answer the question how do we minister to our neighbor? Mm -hmm. Jesus has, for lack of a better word, Kaiser Sosaid the whole thing. He has, he has, he really has. He's changed that dynamic. But going back to, I mean, going to your question of how do we do that? How do we become these neighbors? How do we love? the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. There's actually a story that follows this. It's the story of Mary and Martha, mm. right? Where something very similar happens as in that Martha is very absorbed with mm -hmm. her problems here. Just like, just like um, this, this uh, expert in the law is focused on his own situation. Um, the Samaritan is able to see a broader um, situation in this. Martha is in that situation. And it's interesting what Jesus says to her. She's, he says, um, verse, um, verse 40, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had been made. She came to him and asked, Lord, 
don't you care that my sister has left me to work by myself? Tell her to help me. And this is Jesus' response. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away mm. from her. And what Mary has chosen is to sit at Jesus' mm-hmm. feet and learn from him. So maybe what Jesus is saying and maybe what Luke is doing by these progression of the stories is that the way to get to one is by following the other. Mm. The way to get to this place where we can have that broader perspective, the way that we learn to realize that we are the one in the ditch and so thus can have mercy on others is to sit at Jesus' Mm. feet, is to choose the one thing that is Mm. so important and not be distracted by the many things. And those those many things are good. See, I think often we make a mistake within within religious conversation yeah. or conversations of faith, and we say, "Well, uh, really, the choice is is very clear. It is between something bad and something good." Mm, dichotomy. Um, yeah. And it, it it should be very clear what we should choose because one of these is good and God is going to approve of it and the other one is bad. The reality is that's very rarely how life plays out. Uh, there's, to be sure, some cases where that happens. But more likely than not, hmm. the majority of life is lived a- attempting to make the best decision amidst a wide range of choices that are good, uh, but maybe not as beneficial. Mm. And I think that's that's what the story, uh, th- these two stories that you've connected brilliantly have in common. Was this teacher of the law a good man? By any standard, he spent most of his time doing good things. He was... He read the Bible, went to church, probably when uh, when he when he encountered a beggar, um, if he wasn't if he wasn't going to temple, he would have he would have given, given him some money. He uh, he probably uh, prayed for uh, for the Romans. He was probably a, a really good guy. Martha is fantastic. I love Martha in this story because she. She values Jesus so much that he says the spaces in which we encounter we encounter Jesus matter, and so preparations ought to be made. But in both those cases, that is not the most important thing. Yeah. The most important thing is the one thing. And so I think when it comes to missions, it is trying to find what that most important thing is. And as you're probably wondering what that most important thing is, friends, it's the gospel. It's the fact that you some at some point were in the ditch mm. and you needed a Samaritan. So perhaps uh, the story of the gospel is as simple as I was in the ditch and I needed a Samaritan. Uh, one of my favorite writers, Joey, and I'll end with this and uh, have you close us with some final thoughts in a prayer. Uh, one of my favorite, favorite writers, uh, Carl Bart, whom I quote copiously wrote perhaps what is in the 20th century the broadest uh just collection uh, within systematic theology bart calls it uh church dogmatics and it is a, a tome that i mean i've read some i i don't think i think if i did nothing but read church dogmatics it would take me several years to to finish it yeah. 
Um, and <laughs> so it's funny because he who uh, Bart, who was such a prolific a uh, writer, mm -hmm. gets asked um, as as he's giving an interview. Uh, Dr. Bart, you've uh, one of the most uh, influential voices in theology in the 20th century. You've returned us to the power of Scripture. You have propelled the Christian church to re-encounter a high Christology, etc., etc., etc. What is the most important thing? And Bart summarizes dogmatics mm -hmm. with one sentence, Jesus loves me, this I know. Mm -hmm. And that's the one thing. And that is the gospel. Jesus loves me, this I know, because I was a ditch. I was in a ditch, and he showed mercy on me. Yeah, yeah. What we need is the Savior. And the Savior comes to us in ways that we don't always expect. Sometimes mm. he comes to us through a Samaritan, mm. a person that we may not disagree with, and we may not agree with, that we may even hate. Mm -hmm. And yet, Jesus is saying, they're your neighbor mm. too. And they, they, I have a heart for them too. Mm. And just remember, you're not that different from yeah. them. So. Powerfully stated, Joey. Let's pray. Let's pray. Our good and gracious God, we want to thank you so much for being our Savior. Because all of us are in a ditch. All of us need help. We need a Savior. And you have chosen to be that Savior for us. So Lord, help us to also, um, help us to never forget that we need a Savior. And help that propel us to reach out to those in need as well as our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we'll see you next week, hopefully a couple pounds heavier as you enjoy Thanksgiving. May you enjoy it with those whom you love. And if you're living in a season of life where those whom you love seem far away and where uh, the season is simply a reminder of your solitude, remember two things. We love you. But probably more importantly, Jesus loves you. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.